the book of Isaiah in chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9 uh, this morning. Isaiah chapter 9, and we're going to start in verse 1. The Bible says, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be at the first, I'm sorry, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan and Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of darkness of death, that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy that they joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government... And peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth then even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Let's pray. Father, we've come to you this morning already and we come to you and ask you that you would have your will and way in the service, that you would be glorified and uplifted and honored. And Lord, I pray that the reading of your word will find rest in our hearts and our minds, and Lord, that we will apply it to our life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Isaiah is speaking <clears throat> to the northern kingdom. We've been covering on Wednesday nights the kings and the prophets, and we have certainly read about how wicked the northern ten tribes in the northern kingdom of Israel had become. And because of that, God allowed the things that he normally held at bay, he does not send sin into our life, but the things that he protects and prevents from us, he lifted those restrictions. He basically allowed Assyria to do what Assyria does, and they came into those northern ten tribes, and, and they would destroy, and they would attack, and, and the, the prophet Isaiah is telling them that in this, he said the people... In fact, I want you to see this in verse uh, 2. It's dealing with our sight. He says, the people, two things here, that walked in darkness have seen a great light, and they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shine. We've said this before, and I'll say it again and again. When it comes to God's people, yes, sometimes judgment comes in, but there's never judgment without hope. He always has it tinged with hope. And if you look at that, we've talked about the storm clouds. We've talked about finding the light in the middle of the storm cloud. He says to them, they've walked in darkness. That's not just saying that sin is all around them. We have a 
we are predisposed in our humanity when we read things to always assume the best of ourselves. Always. So when we read this, it's not just that they're walking amongst the people of darkness. It's that they themselves are walking in darkness. Isaiah himself said what? He said, I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. And he said before that, I am a man of unclean lips. When did Isaiah have that understanding? When did he see that? If you look at chapter 6, just three chapters prior, he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With twain, with two of the wings, he covered his face. With twain, he covered his feet. And twain, he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And of course, the rest of the story, I'm not preaching on Isaiah 6 this morning, but when he sees this, he's saying, look, when we see God for who He is, when we see Him and His holiness, then we understand what we're not. We can't understand where we are truly at until we truly accept and understand how holy our God is. And by the way, this this prophetic passage that we read here, he is talking to a people. He understands that he's in the middle of a people of unclean lips. He understands that they are a people that are walking and participating in darkness. And because of that, they do live in a land in in, in the shadow of death. There is a constant... There is the idea of a shadow. The idea of a shadow of death is the idea that it's pursuing them. And we talked about what's pursuing you a few weeks ago, but in this particular passage, when we are living in constant darkness and sin, there is death around the corner. Now, it it may be, there's a passage in Ecclesiastes where... Through the inspiration of God, Solomon says, why should you die before your time? He's not talking about your physical death. He's talking about living this life, but yet being dead inside. And he's not even talking about salvation. He's talking about the very ability to enjoy the life that God has given us. How many families have we seen that are destroyed and broken because one person refuses to talk to another person and they can't even enjoy in the short time that we have on this planet and the time that we know each other like we know each other right now, there are people that will refuse, that are even Christians, that will refuse the communication with each other. Why? Because of their own pride and because of our own bitterness and because of our own whatever we have built up. At what point do we realize that we are living a dead life? 
We're not enjoying all the things that God has for us to enjoy. One of the things we were talking about just yesterday and this morning is that, and, and what this whole year has done to a lot of people, we are made by God to be people that interact with each other. How awkward was it when we came to church for the first time after quarantine or whatever you want to call it, after the online existence that we all had, and we walk into church and we're like, we can't hug each other, can't, we don't, should we shake hands, should we not shake hands, should we hug, should we not hug? Why do we feel that awkwardness? Because it's our natural inside of us instinct to show affection. And in the family of God, which is what a church is, man, that's what we want to do. Because we have something in common. We have a Savior that we've trusted in. We have sins that have been forgiven. We have blood that's been applied. And we are in agreement about that. And we share that as a family. And so when we understand that reality, there is a, there, we get in a place sometimes spiritually where we live our life and we're living dead. You know, it always takes just that one person to step out and say, I am going to accept my fault. I'm going to accept my sin. I'm going to embrace my error and say, you know what, I'm going to own it. I'm going to get it right with God. I'm going to confess it to him and I'm going to leave it there. But what happens so often is if it's two people at odds, what happens is we make amends with the expectation that they do the same, which means we never made amends. If we truly want forgiveness, then we have to be able to own our own failure and fault without any expectation of the same in return. That's true forgiveness, by the way. That's freedom, by the way. That's living life. That's what it's all about. And man, this is the season where you have family members that you don't see and you haven't seen in a long time. And there may be things out there, man, get, get it out of there. Get rid of it. And, and enjoy and live the life that God's given us. Let me tell you, the people of Israel were walking in the sins of Ahab and their fathers and the northern ten tribes. They were walking in these sins. They were living in those sins. And because of that, they were living in the land of the shadow of death. They were dwelling in it. And the Bible says, but guess what? Upon them, the light has shined. The idea that death is around the corner, that worthlessness is around the corner, that absolute defeat is always pursuing you and around the corner. And that's the shadow that you're living in. But what happens when light shines on a shadow? It's gone. The shadow is only caused because something is standing in the way of the light. And so the idea that we need to understand is the, the light that's being shown here in verse 2, those that are walking in darkness now seeing. So let's go back to that part. Walking, that's the idea of us acting in darkness. And because of our acting in darkness, we are being pursued by darkness. And here's the thing to think about. Those that have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Thank God. That he chose, when we had no hope in ourselves because of what Adam did, he chose to be made a little lower than the angels. He chose to take on human flesh. And can I tell you this morning that Jesus has always existed, that Jesus is 100% God. 
and that when he took on his human flesh, he was, no, he was not made into a sinner. He was 100% God taking on 100% human, human flesh. And he did that because that was the only way a sacrifice could be applied that would be great enough to forgive us all of our sins. That's why Jesus, when he met with Nicodemus in the verse that most of us have learned as children in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's not some random occurrence, and that's not when Jesus began to exist at Christmas. Jesus existed before creation. The Bible says that by him in Hebrews chapter 1 are the worlds held in place. By him were they formed. He was there in the Trinity at the beginning, and he said, the Bible says that he came, he, God loved us so much that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then what does it follow up with that? He did not send his son into the world to do what? To condemn the world. Jesus did not come here to declare you and I guilty. Because why? There was no need to. We were already declared guilty. The Bible says he did not come into the world to condemn us, but that the world through him might be saved. Those that believe are not condemned, but those that believe not are what? They are condemned already. Their judgment's already been made, those that don't believe. Jesus came. The whole reason we celebrate, and we understand this, the whole reason that we have the, the presence that symbolize gifts, the reason we give things to each other is because God gave us the greatest gift that could ever be given, and that was to be freed from the bondage and the darkness of our sin and to be made a new creature in Jesus Christ. The Bible says, Behold, all things, if any man be in Christ, he is a what? A new creature. Old things are passed away. And all things become new. And you may say, preacher, I'm, I don't feel that way this morning. I don't feel like I'm living that way this morning. If you're saved today, nothing can change the fact that you are a new creature in Jesus Christ. And one day, one day, my eyes will see my destiny that's waiting for me, and I will be made like Christ. And I will see that my inheritance, and I will be sinless. Why? Not because of me, not because of what I've done, not because of any good works, but because Jesus Christ came and he provided that sacrifice for me. And through his blood, I have been made clean. And so we understand in verse 2 that Isaiah is saying, look, we are a people of darkness. I'm a man of unclean lips, a people of unclean lips. We walk in darkness, and because of that, we are pursued by darkness. But the light will shine. There will be a day. Let me tell you something. We can look around and we can look at this kind of a year and we can say, man, things on the outside, can it get any worse? Well, it has been worse if, you, if you're not a student of history. It has been worse for the church if you're not a student of church history. But let me tell you something. <coughs> there is always a better day coming. Always. It doesn't matter if you're living your best life right now. It doesn't matter if you are living in complete victory right now. Can I tell you something? There's still a better day coming. Because this world is still this world. And there's still a day when we will be brought home. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Jesus said, I will come back and I will take you 
to be with me. And by the way, when he left, what did he say? And by the way, he came to die for us, and he died and he was resurrected. And before he ascended, he said this, I have to go, but I will send unto you a comforter. By the way, if you're saved today, he lives inside of you. The Spirit of God, God the Spirit, the third part of the Trinity, lives inside of us as Christians and has sealed us into the day of our destiny. Verse 3 shows joy. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest and as men rejoiced when they divide the spoil. I want you to think about the joy that's mentioned in this verse. If you look in verse 3, the joy of harvest and the joy of dividing the spoil. Harvest, we all know what that is. Harvest is the joy that comes when you are fulfilling the work, the work that you have put into something when it comes to fruition and you reap the harvest for the work you've done. When you have earned the reward of your labor, that's a joy, right? And now in our world today, not all of us are out there living off the land. Our world today, that would be payday, right? So if you want to go to look at the next one, the joy of when you divide the spoil. That means you've been at war. And when you've been at war and you have successfully won the battle, in those days, dividing the spoil means if one army conquered another army, they go in and anything that belonged to that army that now no longer exists now belongs to you. So the enemy's been defeated... So now you gather what you need. Both of these joys are joys of provision. Let me repeat that. Both of the joys in verse 3 are joys of provision. That is one of the easiest things for us to be able to understand and comprehend. Have you ever felt like I don't know where to turn next? And then all of a sudden a provision comes in and you feel, yeah, okay. Okay, it's, it's going to be okay. It could be, it could be loss. It may not be financial. It could be loss. And then there's that day where there is joy because the loss there is some kind of restoration after the loss. This idea is something where there is a need, and the need has been met. There's not going to be joy if there's never a need. We understand that? It goes hand in hand. But the beautiful thing about a believer is we can understand that we have a need. And the people of Israel, even in their darkness, can you imagine what it was like, and we talked about this last Wednesday, when Elijah was out there and Obadiah, not the prophet, was wandering around trying to find water and grass for the horses of Ahab, and he walks up and he sees Elijah, and Obadiah is the one that hid the prophets. Can you imagine what it would be like for a man like Obadiah, who the Bible says was a righteous man that loved the Lord with all of his heart, to live in the house of Jezebel and Ahab? He was the caretaker of their home? Can you imagine every day 
in loving God and yet at the same time looking around and seeing the sin around him and looking at his country, probably longing to be in Jerusalem, probably longing to have a king of Judah reign over him, probably longing for the old days when all the tribes were together. And he's living in this darkness, but guess what? There's a joy coming. There's going to be a day when your head is going to be lifted. I challenge you, go into the Bible and and look up, if you have a Bible app or a program on your computer, (coughs) and look up, lift, lift, the word lift and the word head, lift up your head. It's a beautiful series to look at of how God reaches down and he's saying, hey, lift up your head, lift your head up. Why? Why do we hang our heads? Because we feel heavy, because we feel loss, because we feel defeat, because we feel like the Lord is not the one that's winning this particular fight. We feel like darkness is what's winning. We feel like maybe in our effort we have failed. We feel like maybe we haven't done what we ought to do in some way, or we feel maybe it's our own defeat. Maybe it's the defeat of things that are outside of our control, the world around us. Maybe it's whatever, but the bottom line is the Bible says, hey, there's times where God says, hey, lift your head up. There is hope coming. There is joy in the morning. Darkness only lasts for a time, but the sun's going to rise. And there's going to be a day when our Lord is going to come back. He's already provided salvation. Heaven is our home. Our eternity is secure. The victory is had. Revelation says that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That battle has already been fought. Everything happening in the right now is just superfluous. It means it it doesn't matter. It's just running around in circles like a dog chasing his tail because God already has things in control and his plan is supreme and the bible says in verse 3 thou hast multiplied this the joy in harvest they divide the spoil that joy that happens when provision takes place and then why look at the enemy in verse 4 the destiny of the enemy asaph the the psalmist said in, in psalm 73 asaph said I was envious of the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary and then I understood what was going to happen to them. I was worried about the wicked and how much success they were having until I saw what was eventually going to happen. Look at verse 3, 4, and 5. For thou, talking about God, thou hast broken the yoke of his burden. Why are the people happy? Because they've broken the yoke of burden. What's a yoke? The two oxen that we see, and they've gotten the wood beam over their shoulders, and they're drudging along, working on behalf of whoever is driving the wagon, right? And the Bible says that that yoke is going to be broken. Do you ever feel like a beast of burden to the parts of the world around you? There's going to be a day when that yoke is going to be broken. The staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, what's whipping the yoke. The Bible's describing it as as if we're oxen. And he's saying that staff, the rod of the oppressor, is going to be broken. And then he says, as in the day of Midian. 
Man, my dad talked last night. We had our family Christmas, and he mentioned, he mentioned Gideon and the Midianites. And he talked about how they had hundreds of thousands of troops. And they were coming in to just abuse Israel and take what they wanted when they wanted it. And Gideon started out with 30,000 men, and God took him all the way down to 300. Can you imagine a man that didn't even want to do anything? A man that was hiding, and the angel shows up to Gideon, and what does he tell, he tell him? Oh, thou mighty man of valor. I can just imagine Gideon hiding behind the wine press, threshing the wheat. He's like, who are you talking? Is there a mighty man of valor here? Where's he at? I'd like to meet him. And the angel's talking to Gideon. Why? Because he knew what Gideon was capable of. And he called Gideon to go and lead the armies of Israel against, and after a bunch back and forth laying out the fleece, and then, and then God requiring him to destroy the grove to Baal, and then his own father being a witness to that, and increasing his own dad's strength spiritually because his son took a stand. And then all of a sudden he's ready, and he gets 30,000 men are ready to go, and God says, that's too many. But God, they have over 100,000, that's too many. 30,000 is too many. What about this many? 10,000, that's too many. How many do I take? Well, here you go. You're going to end up with 300. Why? Because when God does something miraculous, he wants you to be in I to be very, very clear, and he doesn't want to be misunderstood that it's not us. He does what he wants. Somebody's cry because of the Midianites, somebody's cry of deliverance had been lifted up to God, and God heard it. Can you tell, you know the difference between the sinning people of Israel and the Midianites? The sinning people of Israel were God's people. God will deal with them because they're family. He'll deal with Midianites in a different way because they're not family. It reminds me of the, the man back in the New Testament when the demons were being cast out, and there was a man that wanted to get in on that, on that popularity train, so he decided he would follow the disciples, and he walked up to a man that was possessed. And he said, this unsaved man said to the possessed man, in the name of Jesus and in the name of Paul, I command you to come out, talking to the demon. And the demon spoke out of the man and said, I know who Jesus is. And I know who Paul is. I don't know you. And he leapt out of that man and possessed the other man. Let me tell you something. The reason the child of God, the New Testament, could cast that out is because he had the power of God on his side. It wasn't because of him. This man with empty power. Satan is a counterfeiter. He wants the power of God. People that are unsaved, that don't understand, they want to have spiritual significance. That's why Paul had to tell Timothy, hey, you don't need to be listening to the philosophies of man. There's a bunch of people out there that's going to give you their opinion. And he, Paul said, it is like vain jangling. It's empty noise. It means nothing. It's babbling because the only thing that matters is the Word of God. We've got people today, even in our churches, that do not give the Word of God is proper reverence. We have people that will open up the book of God, and they want to give you their own opinion, and they want to force the Word of God to fit their opinion. When the Bible says simply, open up this book and say, thus saith the Lord God, he's very clear about what he believes and what he wants us to live, our, how he wants us to live our life, <coughs> and what he wants us to believe. But the destiny, think of this, of the enemy is compared to the Midianites. 
He will break, what does it mean, as in the days of Midian, he will break the yoke of bondage in a way that boggles your imagination. He will deliver when deliverance is not expected. He will provide when provision seems impossible. And yet we still doubt. And this God who favors us, not because we deserve it, but because we have said, I trust you and I love you and you're my Savior. And because we have entered into that relationship with him, he, we now have his favor as a father, a good father, favors his children and keeps an eye out on them. Man, I think it's significant. Kathy's got her phone dinging all the time when the kids leave a certain place and go to another place. We know. I check my phone every now and then to make sure the kids are okay. I told Tucker the other day, I can't even listen to the radio in the mornings on the way to school because if I hear that there's a wreck in Atlanta, I'm wondering, I wonder if Tucker's okay this morning because I know he's out on the road. That's what parents do. Isn't that what we do as parents? We worry about the kids. We want to make sure they're okay. We want to provide. We want to protect for them. And can I tell you, my level of wanting to provide, my level of wanting to protect, my level of wanting to be there and to, and to help them is nothing compared to the way God wants to provide and protect for us. Every, verse 5, battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. Why? For unto us a child is born. <laughs> unto us a son is given. All the noise that the enemy brings to our door, all the, all the worry, all the circumstances of life, all the bad government, all of the deceit, all of the manipulation. Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. Can you imagine a world where God runs the government? I'm not talking about man running the government in God's name. I'm talking about God running the government. Whew, what a beautiful, restful world that would be to live in. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. Why? Because there's, we're in wonder. We're full of wonder in who he is and how he does what he does and how he has delivered. Counselor. Man. Can I tell you, I would say everybody in this room is at one time or another battled with depression. Can I tell you, everybody in this room, and it's not something we like to talk about in Christianity, but is, can I tell you that everybody in this room at one time or another has probably needed to talk to somebody about what's on your heart and mind? And can I tell you, there's no greater person to talk to about that than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the counselor that will bring you a peace that passeth all understanding. The counselor, the mighty God, the only God, the creator, the everlasting father. Your father may have been a bad dad. Your father may have been a great dad, but God's called him home. 
You may have a human father that has just knocked every, checked every list about how a dad ought to be. But yet, he never changes. He's everlasting. And he loves us greater than our human fathers have even tried to love us. And the prince of peace. It's in his royal position to bring peace into our life. It is his very nature of who he is. You know, people say the prince of, and they name a land, right? They, they name a location. If someone's a prince, they are a prince of a place. Jesus is the prince of the place of peace. You want to live in the kingdom of peace, where you're constantly at peace, then let Christ rule in our heart. Because he's the prince of peace, and he brings that. And of the, not only does it say these are his titles, but and this is what we're going to close with, but of the increase of his government and his peace, there shall be no end. It will never stop. Time after time on Wednesday nights as we go through the kings and the prophets, we read about kings. And whenever a righteous king started ruling, the last one we read about was Asa. He ruled for 42 years or 41 years. And man, that's got to be a... The Bible says there was no war during a large part of his reign. Can you imagine? Those people in Judah, can you imagine being the people in the northern tribes? Like Obadiah? <clears throat> and him looking down south at the nation of Judah, thinking, man, man, I wish I lived in that nation. That's a righteous nation. That's a godly nation. Can I tell you, we can live in the kingdom of Christ right here in the middle of this world. We can live in the kingdom of peace right now. The idea of peace, the very word peace, means what's, what's going around us? Trouble. There's no need for peace if there's not a, something to be peaceful from. Until we reach our eternal peace with God, and then it's a constant reality that that world, the lost world, the troubled world that Satan would love us to live in no longer even exists. His government and peace shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. He will order things. <clears throat> he will establish things. And with justice. Have you ever thought in your mind, that's just not right? That's not right. What you're saying is, that's not just. That's not fair. The Bible says, with judgment and justice, he will establish things forever. And what will make sure this happens? The zeal of the Lord of hosts. That is Jehovah and the, the, the God, the commander of the angelic armies, his zeal will make sure it happens. That means his passion, his desire. It's not a passing interest. It is a passionate interest. 
And his interest is to see this world restored and for peace to reign in our hearts. And for us to be brought into our perfected state, restored state with him. That is what we've been promised. That's why we celebrate Christmas. The Savior. The, third, the second part of the Trinity. God has come in flesh. He gave himself as a gift to restore humanity to himself. And to those of us that know him, that day's come. The day that we will be with him forever in heaven. And the beautiful thing about it is we now have that same message we can take to people around us. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your blessings. And Lord, I pray as we go into this season of remembrance, Lord, of, of thinking of you and what you've done for us, God, I pray that you would just draw us close to you. Not just in a, in a superficial way where we just talk about you and we go through motions, but God, that on a very personal, individual level, that we are in communication with you and drawing peace from your reserves that you have for us. Lord, I, I want you to be real to me. But Lord, I understand for that to happen, I've got to be in an even closer personal walk with you. Lord, I want you to restore our joy, our hope, our strength, our peace that passeth all understanding. Lord, we know this is where you want us to live our life every day. Lord, sometimes the storms of this life, they beat on us and they weather us down. But God, you are the restorer of our souls. Lord, I ask that you would lift our heads, lift us up into fellowship with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.